Welcome back to Talk Evidence. As we said last week, we're focusing on the COVID-19 pandemic and the emerging evidence that we're getting about it. Last week, we focused mostly on the epidemiology of the pandemic, the questions that are going around about uh, how many people in a population are affected and, and what that means for our modelling and how we can work out what the fatality rate is. We also talked a little bit about some antiviral treatments. This week we're going to be talking about guidelines using some of that information that we're getting out and also a little bit about testing. To do that, as always, I'm joined by Helen McDonald and Carl Hennigan. Helen, can I get you to introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Helen McDonald. I'm the UK Research Editor at the BMJ. And Carl. Hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I am Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ EBM. Carl, what have you been up to this week um, as busy pulling together the evidence? Yeah, we've been pulling together a lot of evidence, particularly for primary care and in the community. There's huge uncertainties and trying to bring evidence from other areas in acute respiratory infections. And that's really difficult to do when you're saying COVID is brand new and trying to provide good advice about how to treat people in the community. Huge uncertainties and huge evidence-based questions that need to be answered. And I think we'll come out of this with a sense of a need to relook at how evidence is developed, how it's particularly kept up to date and how it's disseminated to the front line. And I think we're going to require some rethink of where we're at and what we're doing. So a question I've had during all of this is, you know, we, we know a lot about respiratory diseases uh, in general, but as you said, this is a, a really specific new one. So um, are we getting a sense of, is this, you know, like other ones or or do we have to, to sort of scrap all of the, the stuff we know and, and start again and, and build a whole new evidence base about this? Well, I think first is to say when people say this is a new virus or a a new emerging infection, I think you'd still have to pause there and say it's not 100% certain. I want you to just think since 1970, we've discovered about 1,500 pathogens, of which 70% of them come from animals. Some people are well aware of some, like Ebola, HIV, but they're not aware of many circulating diseases that have been discovered, like metanumavirus that give rise to viral infections and viral pneumonia. So our real ability of what I call influenza-like illness and what's going on is actually pretty primitive. But what we do know is these viruses are all around us, circulating all the time. And then at some point, they emerge into an epidemic or in sometimes a pandemic. We're more understanding about what happens with influenza, but less uncertain about SARS because we've only had one episode really before in 2002-3. We've had the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus and now we've got this big outbreak. And I assume this will kick off a large piece of work, particularly about the ecology. How do we interact? How do we live with these viruses? And what's the best way to treat them? Now, the problem is when you look at it, there are no pharmacological treatments right now that have been shown to work that actually improve your outcomes. And that's where 
There's a huge sort of number of trials going on trying to reduce the uncertainties and answer questions about what we may use, particularly to reduce your viral load, but particularly to reduce the complications. And it makes it even harder then to know what to, to do with that evidence and how to synthesize it and collate into uh, everything else that we already understand. So uh, we'll get onto that in a second. But in talk evidence, we usually do a, a start and a stop every week, something to start, something to stop. Um, there seems to be no rules in COVID-19. So uh, uh, we we're tearing that up a little bit. But um, do we? Does anyone have anything new that they want to bring? Anything that uh, you found out this week that you would like to talk about? I want to hear from Carl on um, primary care and pneumonia because that that really fascinated me. Yeah, no, I think it's a very interesting issue. Before we get there, let's just step back a bit and think about what's happening in the infection. One of the problems here is we're seeing this emergence of supersized hospitals, of sucking people into hospitals and these big centres. And we've got this Nightingale Hospital happening in London and we're going to send 4,000 people there. But if you look at the evidence of what's happening in Italy and Spain, as you bring people into hospital, it becomes a sort of super centre for the infection. 10% of all the infections in Spain are in healthcare workers. Then you come into hospital. If you haven't got the infection, you're going to definitely get it. So it becomes a vector of carrying on the infection. So one of the things for us is, is to start to consider, is it an appropriate way to deal with everybody by bringing them into hospital? Or can you reverse that policy and start to think about, actually, can you keep people in the home setting? And if you did that, you could give them good advice. You could probably give them a pulse oximeter. You could give them a, a, a thermometer and you could have daily contact to understand what's going on, to watch out for those who deteriorate. Because I think there are two important issues here. Is One is the deterioration into what we call viral pneumonia. And viral pneumonia tends to be slow onset. Day five, day seven, you start to deteriorate. It's a disease that often doesn't give you a high temperature, but actually gives you the shorts of breath and can lead to the respiratory distress that requires hospitalisation. Versus what happens with viruses is you've also got to be aware and look out for secondary bacterial complications. And that's really important because the evidence from systematic review shows that if you have community-acquired pneumonia and you have viral pneumonia at the same time, a viral pathogen on board, your risk of death is doubled. Now, how did you tell the two and what should you do about it? Well, uh, bacterial pneumonia might have a higher temperature can be unilateral, can also come, come on much more sudden. It's hard to detect from viral pneumonia because the deterioration can happen sudden as well. Very difficult to tell. And how do you tell. detect that but from what, acute respiratory distress, which you might be seeing from COVID? Very difficult, very difficult to do that. And I think one of the keys is of one of the discussions which I'm having with my colleagues is as soon as you're going to come into a hospital, because it's so difficult to tell, they're going to give you a single or a double uh, uh, dose of antibiotics to cover common pathogens and atypical pathogens. The question there is, if you consider somebody has bacterial complications, I think it's common sense to lower the threshold for giving them the antibiotics and seeing if they have an initial response to that in the next 24 hours. 
but it's very difficult to determine viral from bacterial pneumonia in the absence of radiology, in the absence of blood tests. So it's an incredibly difficult job in the community for GPs. Even harder when uh, people are trying to do this down a Skype call or, or something. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. But one of the things about viral pneumonia is to remember it's insidious. It carries on and on and it's slow. And with some of the symptoms of COVID, loss of appetite and nausea and, and gastrointestinal diarrhea, that type of symptoms, you can get dehydrated. You can stop eating. So it's really important to keep your nutrition up because the problems start to occur about five, day five, seven. And, you know, there's some perception that what's happening there, either you're immunosuppressed or you're running out of physiological reserves. And so if you haven't been looking after yourself, you'll run into trouble. So that's where we've got to have people who are isolating, particularly the elderly, being delivered the food, the supplements that they require to ensure they stay healthy. And so these types of activities should be a priority in the community, should be a priority in nursing homes, along with good PPE so that people are not infected going from one person to the next carrying the infection around with them. If you do that, you'll reduce the number of people coming into hospital and then you'll stop the hospitals having these super spreading events as well. So I think it's an important way of looking around the strategy. But how do you tell, I'm looking at the evidence, there's very limited evidence about viral pneumonia and how you tell the difference in the community, largely because we ignore it and largely we never test for it and we don't think about it because we often think about community and pneumonia, it's about a bacteria, it's about an antibiotic treatment. So that was a start thinking about bacterial pneumonia in the community. Helen, you were going to to talk about guidance. Was this one of the things that you think should be included in in some of that guidance that uh, we're we're wondering about? Well, I was thinking bigger picture this week. I was looking around, thinking about this podcast and, and things to start and stop. And what I'm most struck by is really the volume of information coming out from people and different organizations on COVID-19. We've got research coming out, we've got evidence summaries, there's sort of information ranging from informal advice, sort of expert opinion on matters, um, to local and to national or international guidance. And the thing that got me... um, thinking about it was actually a couple of weeks ago when there was the case of um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories being recommended against in COVID-19. And that really got me thinking about the kind of appetite for information that's out there on COVID, particularly amongst um, patients in the public as well, how it cascades through the media and social media really quickly and how it can be very confusing, even including fake information out there, particularly when there's a lot of uncertainty. It's really made me think more about the efficiency and transparency and trust issues involved in making guidance in a crisis. So I think for efficiency, what we saw with the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories was that within hours, there was loads of guidance out there. It sort of seemed to explode, create create this work explosion with everyone commenting or coming back with counter-guidance. And I thought there must be better ways we can we can identify when issues are important to many people. Maybe they're universal, maybe they're national, maybe they're regional. But isn't there some way that we could better coordinate this type of workload and share it out so that we're not all making guidance about the same thing? 
And then the other thing, the transparency and trust thing was it's hard to trust advice or recommendations when a lot of the information out there is quite opaque, when you can't easily identify who has been involved um, and make a judgment about whether you think relevant people have been involved, whether that's particular types of experts, methodologists, ethicists, patients and the public. It's hard when you don't understand how the information has been put together. Have they used evidence? Have they used guideline methodology? And to really understand then what the rationale behind making a recommendation is and whether in the quest for speed to get something out there, what corners might have been cut. And this has been bothering me, I think, particularly as we've seen a shift from, well, that first guidance on NSAIDs, which kind of triggered my thought process on this, to guidance which seems to have the ability to shape people's lives in much uh, stronger ways, particularly guidance around the escalation of care. Um, So perhaps moving from being unwell into the community to be considered for admission into hospital if you are not doing so well. And then on in hospital to escalation into higher dependency areas and, and into ITU. And it really felt to me like this guidance, that type of um, advice really needs to be made collaboratively involving a wide range of professionals, ethicists and patients in the public and produced in a much more coordinated manner so that you don't get lots of regional variation, which is likely to upset people or or make it hard for people to understand why um, decisions are being made that way about them. And I think um, the final thing is just about being clear, being clear about what options are there if escalation and things like that are not for you and having publicly displayed information from organizations that have a standing in those communities making clear why they have those particular policies. And I was interested to see this week that there was some ethical guidance published by the Royal College of Physicians in the UK and supported by a number of other professional organizations in the Royal Colleges. It's described as guidance for frontline staff on ethics um, in a pandemic, but that mentions in it some principles, principles of inclusivity and, and including stakeholders, of transparency, of responsiveness, and the idea that you might need to go back on your recommendations in a pandemic as new evidence emerges and to provide sort of um, an ability for people to feed back and disagree with you and say, have you considered this or the other thing instead. So that that was kind of where my thinking was. And I was interested also to talk to Per Vandvik at the end of last week about his thoughts as a as a guideline maker. Well, let's hear from Per about, uh, about that and see how much he echoes what you've been saying. I'm uh, Per Vandvik. I'm a general internist based in Oslo, Norway. Um, working in a hospital, but I spend most of my time on creating uh, guidelines, clinical practice guidelines. And uh, I also work in a nonprofit foundation called MAGIC, where we try to produce better trustworthy decision support tools for clinicians and patients. But I I can see the COVID-19 pandemic as a great example where we need global coordination of guidance. I think some organizations such as WHO is in the right position to produce uh, trustworthy guidance and then that guidance could be reused, adapted and contextualized for different countries and healthcare systems. 
I think WHO wants to take that role. But the big question is how could WHO work with partners to achieve harmonized uh, updating of, of the guidance and then make the evidence and guidance available for others to reuse? So um, I think what we will see happening over the months to come is a number of uh, trials will be published. We will have higher certainty evidence about what works and what does not work. And then in that situation, we will need what we call living evidence or living guidance. And I think the ability to rapidly update uh, the evidence and the guidance is, is crucial. And again, I think that's where we need to have a global collaboration to make that happen efficiently because there's huge duplication of efforts now. Also, I think the barriers are are across uh, political and, uh, and and other factors. So um, we know from our work, for instance, in our BMJ RAP recommendations that we do, just being a collaborative network of people, clinicians, patients, methodologists across the world, we could actually quite rapidly produce and update guidance. Uh, but when we work with organizations, um, we see that they all are struggling with changing the way they um, they work, and not to mention uh, how to collaborate across uh, across organizations and countries. Because then they would actually have to explicitly agree on the standards for how to produce guidance, the methods, the processes. And so far, I think that is a major barrier. Uh, which COVID-19 just highlights uh, the need to innovate the way organizations uh, collaborate. Well, I'm always hopeful, and I think we see great innovations now in research with the WHO Solidarity Platform Trials, lots of large-scale research initiatives across countries where we rapidly get new evidence on, for instance, drug treatments. I hope we can see the same happening with the guidance organizations, but it's it's a huge challenge. And again, I think WHO is in a, in a great position to orchestrate such an effort, but I'm concerned if they have enough resources or capacity to take on that role. Look, what's the point of doing a guideline when the information you're basing it is highly uncertain and we're not sure what the answers are? So I... I'm going to say, why do we need more of the same? The problem I have with the guideline is there are every country in the world is affected. There are different contexts. There are different age structures. There are different healthcare settings. So how can one group provide one guideline that covers all of that uncertainty? I think what we should be doing is thinking about where's the tools to be able to provide countries with the ability to do the epidemiology, to create their own evidence. Where's the central allocation then of the information resources that matter to help you produce the guidance on the ground? And we found that particularly a problem in in places like Africa. The guidelines just don't apply because the evidence is developed in New York State. How does that apply to Uganda? (coughs) And I think this is incredibly important when we just say we're going to do more of the same. I think what we should do now is just step back, pause and think, what do we want these countries, these communities, different contexts to be able to do. And I think that's about generating evidence which is highly accurate and can inform what we do next. I think you're sort of saying the same thing as Pear, in a way. I I think he's saying, you know, gather the evidence 
make clear what the elements are that might feed into your guideline process. And if you're posting on guideline platforms, what that allows you to do is to adapt that for your local context. So you might say in Africa, well, none of this applies to me at all. And then you've been saved a job of doing all the searching for the evidence. Or you might say there are a few things that are different and maybe we'll alter that. Or I guess you might look at it and think, well, more or less this applies and we'll run with it. Yeah, I guess it's maybe we are saying the same thing. But I guess what I'm trying to say is build it from the capacity upwards, train the individuals, give each country the capacity to be involved in generating the evidence and thinking about how you put the evidence together, as opposed to coming from the top over and saying, here's a few people and we're going to just produce a guideline that you should now apply. And I think that's the distinction we need to make. So if we shifted into the evidence and away from the guidance, one thing that's been interesting me about how evidence is accumulating in the pandemic is the role of preprint servers. So this is the concept that you can put up uh, your research uh, before you submit it to a journal, before it's published, uh, and the scientific community can see it. It's publicly available. um, And they can also comment on it, which might lead you to alter it um, before you submit. And we haven't had preprints in a pandemic before. And I was interested to hear from Joseph Ross, um, who works with the BMJ and also with um, MedArchive, which is the BMJ's preprint server, and to hear how he felt preprints are shaping the pandemic. My name is Joe Ross. I'm a professor of medicine and public health at Yale. We launched MedArchive, which is a preprint for the health and clinical sciences in um, June of 2019. And we did it with, you know, a lot of planning in preparation. We, you know, we started working together with colleagues at Cold Spring Harbor Labs and at the BMJ uh, more than a year before that, trying to plan and think about how this could be done. While you know, preprint servers were being used in other sciences, including the biological sciences. It had never really gotten a lot of uptake in clinical medicine, in part because of concerns around, you know, the earlier dissemination of clinical research could maybe lead to misinformation or bad clinical decision-making, or what if the research isn't right and people make decisions based on it. So we had to, you know, we put some things in place and some safeguards and guardrails and things like that. And, um, we were very excited. We got it all up launched in July, and there was a lot of enthusiasm for it and a lot of demand for it. But we could not have, you know, understood the implications of being up and running when COVID, this pandemic that's now overcome all of our lives, we went from getting about you know 200 or so submissions a month to getting now between four or 500. We get a lot of papers, and it, it reflects the sort of where we are at in our understanding of the disease, and it's evolving. So when COVID first became recognized, what we were mostly getting were uh, small case reports or case series or maybe, you know, uh, an analysis of all the data from a single hospital ward. And it was a lot of descriptive, you know, clinical epidemiology that would, you know, describe the patient sample, how they were treated, uh, you know, how they did. And, And then there were a huge number of modeling papers trying to calculate the R naught or the sort of infectiousness. And now, you know, months have gone by. You know, the first case in China was in December, and now we're in March, and we're starting to see some treatment trials. Uh, we're, start, we're starting to see more prognosis papers. 
you know, the earliest papers were in Chinese populations. Now we're seeing lots of papers from Europe and the United States. And, you know, it's, it's reflecting, you know, where the disease is. The goal is not to, you know, inform patients. It's not to inform the frontline clinicians, but it's to enable scientists to communicate and learn from each other more easily, uh, to build on each other's work and to sort of know what other people are doing to, you know, to refine their own approaches. So that's our, that is our, you know, our key sort of stakeholder, you know, and that's what we always want to know is, is it serving the needs of the scientific community and what can we do to strengthen it to do that better? What I would say is, I mean, there's two kind of interesting takeaways from this. First is, it's amazing that, you know, scientists and physicians in the middle of an epidemic are taking the time to write up you know, what they're experiencing. And it's not always like a perfectly final paper that you would have seen in the BMJ or JAMA or something like that. But people are taking their time to, to do the best job to write up what they're, what they're seeing and analyze their data as accurately as possible. Um, and so that, you know, it's to, to give to the community. But the, uh, it's just enabled much faster communication. People are able to learn from each other. And this is really critical as communities are faced with this pandemic so that you know, the, the people in the U.K. and the U.S. are learning from what happened in South Korea and Singapore and in China. It's, the, the speed is amazing. It's kind of breathtaking to watch. Evidence-based medicine is about the best available evidence. Therefore, it's always better to be informed than not informed. And preprints are putting information out there that we would never have seen in a way, way before. I just think what you've got to do with preprints is have a caveat so that you've got to be aware they have not been peer-reviewed, there may be changes. And so you look at the information, think about the limitations and then understand how you might apply them. And I think that's really important and it's been helpful for things like symptoms and signs. Five of the six reviews are in preprint. Very interesting, very helpful. I would like to see a bit beyond it where there was more emphasis on people then commenting as a peer review process really in the open so you could bring that to the fore. And I think that would really then take it to the next level. I think that's quite an interesting point, Carl, that it feels to me like when you look at these preprint servers, you've got to know a little bit more about what you're doing to be able to spot those flaws. It's not like when you read a paper that's been peer reviewed and some editors have handled it and improved it and maybe asked the, the authors to make the limitations of the paper much, much clearer, perhaps ask them to be more cautious in their language. So I think it, it is um, it's tough. And interestingly, when I was talking to Joseph, one of the points that he made was that preprints were really designed for the scientific community. And I guess what we're seeing in a pandemic is for a tendency for those who are perhaps a little bit further downstream to suddenly be in contact um, with this evidence, which has been sort of quietly there for scientists but um is now being pulled out and and perhaps thrust a bit too close um to decision making so i think that's interesting one of the problems we're picking up as well is the deluge of information and resources and evidence just putting out there a huge list of resources and links is not helpful the real job is to contextualize it and say right this piece of evidence here's how it can be helpful and there's a real need for people to do that really well and try and keep contextualizing and bring it to the front line and say, 
right today, here's some information that can help you about symptoms and signs. There's new evidence about smell, there's new evidence about gastrointestinal symptoms. I think our policy has been a bit slow to take that evidence on board because we were locked down on, this is about a cough and a fever. The preprints and all that information have said, oh, wait, hold on a minute, there's a huge range of symptoms here. And I think that's been incredibly helpful. I think if they do interest you, the other thing which you can have a look at on bmj.com, which is quite interesting, is one of our all-time favourite um, authors, Dr. Richard Lehman, is back, um, not writing his weekly journal blog, but writing us a weekly pre-print COVID-19 blog. Um, so if you want somebody who does have some of that expertise <laughs> to filter the preprints for you, keep your eye on what Richard has to say or follow him on Twitter. Yeah, we should get him on here to tell us uh, about some yes, of the Yes, maybe the we should get him on to tell seeing. us, uh, give us the highlights. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I was going to say, uh, in terms of, you know, what peer review brings to the process and that, that editing thing, we've talked a lot on here about the fact that, you know, that isn't a universal panacea. It doesn't uh, fix all the problems um, no. with science. And, you know, there's always a balance there to be had between uh, what that does bring and, and how it does slow it down. So I suppose this is just, it's one of those things that maybe in retrospect we'll look back on and, and it mm. will help us really mm. you know, pinpoint how, how useful these are. So there we go. Uh, we've had some information about pneumonia in the community and guidance in a crisis. So last week, Carl, you were telling us uh, a lot about the, the more diverse symptoms that seem to be associated uh, with COVID-19. And you've mentioned it again today. Now, in the last week, I seem to have gone through and checked off in sequentially almost everything that you've talked about. Uh, and then over the weekend, I definitely had the dry cough and the fever, which makes me wonder, have I actually had this? Oh, uh, I see I where you're going with this, Duncan. But I don't <laughs> know. And um, we said we would talk about test. testing. I want a diagnostic <laughs> test, or at least I want a test that... Uh, a diagnostic one, if I could get that right now, or one that is coming in the future that might tell me if I have had it. And I thought, I don't really know enough about this, and it would be useful. Yes. Um, so, guys, can you tell me about about testing? What, yes. what is going on? So, I think this has been the big thing of this week. And the, I, the questions that I've seen floating around are, have we got enough tests have we got the right test? Are we testing the right people? And I thought this would be a perfect opportunity for us to try and cut through some of this hype. So what I've done is I've curated the easy information. Um, so broadly, uh, we've got these two types of tests. We've got these molecular tests, um, which are telling you if you have the disease. You remember from the kind of uh, press conferences that health ministers have been doing, they keep stressing the have um, and then we have these antibody tests, which are looking for immunoglobulin G and M, so IgG and IgM. And these are going to tell us if we have had the disease. And some of these are done uh, in labs and there's some other tests being developed for use at point of care. Well, I think we should speak to someone who's an expert in this then. Yeah, my name's Nick Beeching and uh, I'm an infectious disease consultant at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. And I also work as a senior lecturer at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. 
So broadly speaking, we've got this molecular test and then we've got these antibody tests that are developing to tell you if you have the infection now or if you have had the infection in the past. Tell us what, what we know at the moment about um, how good these tests are in terms of their performance. Well, first of all, you've got to have really good technical technically well-performing tests. And we have those in the reference laboratory at Public Health England. Uh, they were, together with colleagues in Germany and elsewhere, they're among the first in the world to develop a good reference test looking for the virus itself, and that's PCR test. Um, we have developing reference tests for antibodies, again, in a central laboratory, but they take a bit longer to be sure uh, they work properly. Uh, and those are the gold standard tests against which everything else is measured, including uh, kits that are being produced to be nearer the patient. It's not just the test itself that matters. It's actually how you take the sample. Mm -hmm. um, and there's quite a lot of things that affect that. But first of all, uh, usually looking for the virus unless somebody's really ill on a ventilator, for example, you would take a swab from deep in the nose or right from the back of the throat. And if that's not taken properly, then the test won't work. So actually the sampling has to be done well. And we usually combine samples from both the nose and the back of the throat. Uh, and the other thing is when you take the test, so people may not become positive the first week after they've been exposed. And so it's also the timing of the test. And all these things can affect the performance. Uh, the same with the blood. The antibodies take quite a long time to develop, sometimes up to four weeks or more after being infected. So if you take the blood too early during the infection, you might not get a good result. So assuming we do all that well, that we do take our tests with good technique and we do take them at the right time or we repeat them so that we, we get another shot at identifying, um, do we know anything about um, the diagnostic accuracy of these tests in terms of that slightly frightening two by two diagnostic accuracy table, which clinicians tend to feel slightly nervous of looking at. <laughs> and which of those boxes are we feeling sort of worried about in terms of this test performing or not? Yeah, I, I, I tend not to look at the boxes. I, I, I'm a rather simple clinician. So uh, I think of it in terms of just sensitivity and specificity. So a sensitive test means you don't miss anything. You pick up everything. You might pick up a bit too much. Uh, and that's ideal where you're screening an infection. You know, if you're testing people who might have an infection, you want a test that doesn't miss any, even if you then have to confirm it with a better quality test afterwards. Um, if you're looking to be absolutely sure about confirming that something has happened, uh, then specificity is good. In other words, you want it to be really accurate. So if I had a blood test for antibodies and it was positive, I want that to be absolutely sure that, that that meant I'd had the infection and not had something else. Um, and antibody tests are a, a, a bit notorious for sometimes having cross reactions, especially early in the infection. Uh, in practice, it's good to combine both. Um, but but uh, the most important thing for tests for the virus are essentially really good sensitivity. And that testing that they've been doing with the, with the PCR test they're looking at people who have some kind of symptom that, that makes them concerned they have COVID or they've had a particular exposure and then they're being tested. Are they also testing then the contacts or household contacts of those 
those people to understand whether they've had the condition or is, is it just the, the sort of index cases, if that's the right term? Depends where you are and how many tests you have. So in, in the ideal world, you would test lots of people at risk and you still test them for the virus. And you might find it even if they have no symptoms at all. So you would test somebody who's infectious and test those around them. If you then had antibody tests as well, you could test those around them to see if they've already had the infection. So another way of if, if I came into, um, you know, uh, let's say a village and wanted to know who had had infection, then I would normally do an antibody testing and you'd see what proportion of the people at different ages had had infection from that test. And you could ask them if they ever had any symptoms and work out how many had the infection without having any symptoms. And that's a common approach for many infections. So when we move into that phase of trying to work out how many people have had the infection and, and we're looking more at using the antibody test, which of those sensitivity and specificity measures are, are you most bothered about then? Well, as I said, looking for the virus, you want sensitivity. Looking for the antibodies, in a sense, specificity is better. You don't want false positives. You want to be sure that a positive result is there. Um, you want it to be pretty sensitive as well, but the specificity is more important. And how about moving to answer different questions? There are um, people um, people out there perhaps caring for um, vulnerable um, groups of people who are perhaps being shielded at the moment. And there are also concerns from healthcare workers who are um, perhaps um, older, maybe in their 50s or 60s or have comorbidities or are pregnant and who, um, for whom knowing that they have either had the condition or not may influence their ability then to go and care for people. Um, what, what would we be looking at doing there? There's, there are a lot of key workers, healthcare workers and others, people working in the community um, who are off work. They're self-isolating because they might have symptoms or they might be at risk or somebody in the house has a cough. Um, it would be marvellous to have a blood test that said, you've had this infection and we think it's safe for you to go back to work and look after other people. There is one caveat to that, is that we don't yet know if immunity is, is solid. In other words, if you've had the infection, uh, we have a positive antibody test, we assume that you have quite good immunity, at least in the short term. Uh, but we won't know that, of course, until we follow people up for a few years. But even so, it would provide me with reassurance if I had a positive antibody test that at least I had some degree of immunity. I would return to work and I would still have to take appropriate precautions but I would feel happier and I think my employers would feel happier. Mm -hmm. um, and so wide availability of these tests would facilitate that. But we have to come to what about the diagnostic um, characteristics of these tests for helping out individuals? So for helping out those healthcare workers um, who perhaps now... Um, don't have symptoms maybe they've been some of the what is it a fifth or a quarter of the population that have been in self-isolation or quarantine because they've had family members affected um, who potentially could return to work or other members of the population caring for um, vulnerable people um, do you think though there are issues around the performance um, 
of particularly the antibody tests in those um, populations or, or is the information that we're seeing showing that they are sufficiently um, sensitive um, and have sufficient specificity to be reliable there? So my answer to that is yes. But the problem I have is with the quality assurance. The sheer number of manufacturers that are coming to the market is creating problems again. We're talking 20, 30 or more manufacturers developing these tests. They're coming from different parts of the world. Therefore, I think it's much more important you develop a stable, robust, accurate test then rely on a piecemeal approach where you buy some in and then you don't have them and then the supply is available and then next week it's not. So you and mean so, you get expertise using one of these tests and you just stick with that that sort of provider correct. or that manufacturer? Well, one or maybe two or three. But if you end up with 30 or 40, you're going to end up with quality assurance issues. Some of them are going to fall over. That's happened in Spain. They're not going to perform as well as you'd like because you can't ensure the integrity of the supply and the quality of the supply. And I am going to go political again. Sorry, folks. We need to have... <laughs> We need a critical infrastructure that now does this and we need to build that and make sure it's in place going forward. Because, Duncan, you do need a test. And in having a test, it would also make a big difference to healthcare workers if they said, hold on a minute, I've had COVID. I don't need as much PPE in this situation. I can relax a little bit. I'm still going to do the, the gloves, the masks, mm. but I don't need to go in situations where I'm worried about uh, I'm more worried about putting it on myself and then giving it to somebody, but I'm not worried about me personally getting it. It would also mm. allow us to understand the extent of the outbreak right now. You could do that in a random sampling way. You don't need to give it everybody in the first instance, but you could sample and just say, in this population of 10,000 people, let's randomly sample how many people have actually got it. Of them people who have symptoms, let's just sample them. It could be the figures are 10, 20% right now. And if they are, that changes everything we do next. All right, so there this week we have been talking about guidelines and testing. As we said at the beginning, we're going to be doing much more of this kind of uh, coverage of COVID-19. And one thing that is going to be really important going forward is how to decide on where to allocate resources who has got a good chance of surviving the disease and, and and who doesn't and therefore who needs to go on ventilators. All of that is based on the kind of prognostic data that we're getting and that's going to be our focus next week. So subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcast from so you can find out about that uh, until then uh, as always we want to know what your questions are uh, so if you have any questions or comments for us go to bmj.com podcast where you can find out how to get in touch and feed those in that's it from us so we'll be back very soon it's a goodbye from me goodbye from me and goodbye from me